We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, uh, and Jesus uh, is now going to have a face-to-face discussion with Judas, uh, and as a result of that discussion, Judas will depart the scene, uh, and we're going to see a number of lessons as we see how Jesus handles the betrayer. And as I said to you, it's just so incredible as you read this, to recognize the fact that Jesus created, was the creative agent designated by God the Father to create this world. And he knew from the very foundation of the world, of the creation of the world, that the world would need a savior, that this world would fall and need a savior. And so here, Jesus is, is that saving agent. And as Jesus comes back and is that agent, Jesus obviously knows in his foreknowledge that Judas will betray him. Jesus knew that even when he chose, uh, Jesus knew that even when he chose Judas. uh, Because Jesus knew that the scriptures had prophesied that the Savior would be betrayed. And we talked about those verses in Isaiah that related to that. Um, And so the key is now, how will Jesus deal with this person who, although he walked with him for three years, although he's seen the miracles, Although he's seen the power of God in every way, uh, how will Jesus handle this person knowing that this person has given himself over to Satan? So if you turn to chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, follow along as I read from verse 21 to verse 32. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and I'm telling you that that's John who was writing this, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Is this, is this a powerful a powerful drama? Can you just get a piece of what's going on here? Here's Jesus in the upper room with the 12 disciples. John is right next to to Jesus, reclining, uh, most likely with his head towards Jesus. Uh, And Jesus has just dropped this bombshell. One of you is going to betray me. Uh, And Peter doesn't even ask Jesus who it is. Isn't that interesting? He goes to John because he knows John's close to him. Find out which one he's talking about. Find out which one. Which leads you to believe that they were clueless. They were clueless about what was going on. Evil is encamped in the upper room. Evil has walked for three years. His heart is sold out to betrayal, and they did not know it. Think about what that uh, augments for us about how much in your life you're with people that you don't know. You don't know what's in their heart. You don't understand what's in their heart. Now we have to pray for a lost world. This incredible scene, uh, really, it comes alive to me when I, when I read this, this passage and see uh, how, how the disciples themselves are befuddled. Continuing on, verse 25. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? 
Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And let me stop and tell you what that's about. In the Middle Eastern society, uh, when you would have a dinner, there would come a time when you could honor someone specifically at the dinner for whatever reason. And one of the ways that you would honor them is you would take the bread and you would dip the bread in, in the sauce, all right, the, the meat sauce. You would dip it and then you would take and give that bread to the one who you're honoring. It's called the sop. He gave the sop to Judas Iscariot. It was uh, the highest honor that you could give at a particular dinner. Jesus is something. Jesus is something. Really. He gave it to Judas Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Now, let's be careful as to what that means. It doesn't mean that that uh, that he had not already purposed in his heart what he was going to do. He clearly purposed in his heart for three years what he was going to do. But it was at that particular moment that the curtain came down, that his heart had become hardened, that he had determined that's it, it's closed, he dies. Uh, and so you see this whole panoply take place in front of you. Um, and then Jesus says the following, right after that, What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Can you imagine? Still clueless. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Now, everything that you read in the Bible, uh, much of it is, as I said, typological and symbolic. This is another one of those symbolic things. And it was night. He's not telling you, and it was night, just so you get a fix of what time of the day or evening it is. He's telling you it's symbolically night when evil has become encamped. The nighttime. Jesus is the light. Darkness is Satan. Satan has become encamped around our Lord. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God <coughs> is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. Uh, and so you see Jesus speaking about the coming glorification uh, uh, of his life on the cross. And so as we get back to the beginning and look at these verses, we see this second symbolic uh, act in this series of verses. The first symbolic act was the washing of the feet. Or the washing of the feet. Jesus demonstrating that we always are servants. That we serve. The greater serves the lesser. That's the role of Christians. And so Jesus did that. And now the second symbolic act was Jesus giving the sop of bread to Judas. Effectively saying to Judas the traitor... Judas, I love you. I care for you. I, I, I don't want you to do this. I want you to, to rescind your heart. Don't go there. Don't go down the path of wickedness. Don't go down the path of evil. Uh, and can you imagine Jesus spending three years with this man? Three years with this man, walking with this man, choosing this man, and knowing all along 
that this is what he would do, that evil was purposed in his heart. Uh, and so it's so, it's so uh, discouraging to see that you can walk in the company of Christians and never truly be a Christian. This is important. You could go to church. You could go to Bible study. As I said last week, just because you park in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. All right? And that's the point of these, of these lessons, to understand this. Just because you are part of a community of Christians and you think that you're, you're walking in a part of them, it doesn't mean that you are truly saved unless you are regenerated in your heart by the Holy Spirit, that you have said to God, Lord, forgive me, I want you to be my Savior, I want to follow you for the rest of your life. And so you, you see what regeneration requires. And yes, uh, Jesus made it very clear to Peter, you all are clean, you all are saved, but one, but the one has never truly been regenerated. So you see the way God works. He gives us free will. Free will. Yeah. Even though God knew, Jesus knew, uh, through his foreknowledge, what Judas would do, he's still right until the end. Because people have asked me that question. Well, did Judas have to be the betrayer? After all, after all, the verses make it clear in the Bible that Jesus would be betrayed. Yes, Jesus would be betrayed. Judas did not have to do it. God could have certainly put somebody else in that place. Judas did not have to be the betrayer. But Judas, against all of the love of Jesus Christ, refused it uh, and uh, betrays our, our Lord and Savior. And so, as you see this contrast, this incredible contrast uh, between Judas reclining on one side of the Lord, and as you, you read this, you, you really get the context of this. Judas has to be right here on one side of Jesus. John is on the other side of Jesus. And you get this sense because Jesus is dipping the bread and gives it to Judas. And so what you see here is, is this juxtaposition of good versus evil. Light versus dark. Um, and isn't this gospel incredibly well written? I mean, really. I mean, look at how well written this is. This is not the mere words of a man. When I read this and study this, as I've, had, as I've done now for a couple years, I am continually amazed at the, at the way the words uh, create the drama and the story. And as you study it, how the words have more than just the meaning of words, but they have symbolism and typology. Uh, and you recognize this is not the work of a man. This is the work of God. It's as if God had a tape recorder there. This is written now. Remember, this is 50 years later. He's writing this. How do you like that? He's, he's basically a 90-year-old man. If I ask some of you 90-year-olds to ask, tell me what you had for dinner last night. <laughs> Actually, I know a 67-year-old. I, I don't know why I'm picking on a 90-year-old. But that's the point. Do you see the work of the Holy Spirit? Seriously. You see the work of the Holy Spirit that God imbued it. Through, through the Holy Spirit with the ability to go back and remember as if he were just uh, recounting through, a, through a, a tape recorder. Now, as you read these verses, one of the things that you recognize is that Jesus was deeply disturbed. Jesus is deeply disturbed. Um, and, and he's disturbed on a couple of accounts. He's disturbed, first of all, because one of the 12 will betray him. He's disturbed because in a Middle Eastern society, 
that whenever one of your closest intimates would betray you, that was considered the height of infamy. The height. He's disturbed because his disciples are fearful. They're concerned that he's going to die. They're also concerned about all of, of their futures. So there's, there's a, 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 a permeating influence in this upper room of, of darkness and depression. And Jesus is disturbed. Uh, but you see how God uh, reacts to that kind of thing and how God moves forward. One of the things I want you to remember is this. That as Jesus was deeply disturbed, we sometimes look at Jesus uh, and we see Jesus as simply God. Well, he's God. You know, when people say, well, Jesus never sinned, people, some people say, of course he never sinned. He's God. God doesn't sin. But one of the things that we know, uh, we know that uh, Jesus was fully God and fully man. How do you like that? Fully God and fully man. Meaning that in his carnation, here in this world, he was cloaked with the flesh that you're cloaked with. That he was subject to the pain and depression that you're with. That he was subject to temptation the way you're, you are subject to temptation. And so when you live your life and talk about the things and evil and persecution and suffering that you encounter, you need to know that Jesus walked first in your shoes. Amen. There's nothing that you will ever go through that Jesus himself didn't feel. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. How about that? Tempted without sin. Suffering, just like you did. Persecuted in every possible way. And so when you see Jesus in the upper room, you need to know that he felt discouragement, he felt pain, uh, he felt suffering, and this had to be an incredibly difficult time in the life of our Lord. Now we know that within a day of this, Jesus will... Uh, go to Gethsemane to pray. He will take the disciples with him. But you're going to see something incredible happen uh, at Gethsemane, which again is going to tell you the, the uh, high level of stress that Jesus is under. Turn to Luke 22. Verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And by the way, I want you to know what I believe that that verse says. I believe that theologically some people misconstrue that 
to say that Jesus was afraid to go to the cross. Jesus was not afraid to go to the cross. He knew from the beginning of, of the creation of, of the world that he would go to the cross. He was fearful of being cut off from communion with God. That's what he was afraid of. He knew that when he became the very personification of sin, he became the sin carrier for all time, from the beginning of history to the end of history, when he became the sin carrier on the cross, that during that time he would be cut off from God the Father. That's the cup. That's the cup that he's talking about. That here he is. He would no longer be in divine communication with God. And so, verse 43, An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now that is not a mere literary alliteration. There is a condition uh, called hematridosis. Uh, and it is a condition when people are under great stress that they actually will sweat drops of blood. It is the capillaries that are near the sweat glands. Because of the st high stressful condition, those capillaries open up uh, and blood will appear on the face and the body of people. Uh, and Leonardo da Vinci noticed this uh, when he studied people who were about to be executed. Uh, and it was, it was something that he saw. So it was not an unusual uh, situation, but it, it just indicated the enormous amount of stress. And I want you to understand the stress. It's not merely the stress of death. Jesus was not afraid of dying. It was fear of being cut off from God and fear to carry the cross of God across the finish line. Without sin, as he's being there spat upon and cursed uh, and maligned, not in any way to contain anger or revenge, to sit there as the perfect sheep of God, the perfect sacrifice. Think about all of that. When you study how great a God you have, that he would, he would send God himself uh, to do this for us. And so there are great lessons in the fact that Judas was among the, the disciples and you see how Jesus loved him. To me, what an example this is to me as to how I think God wants me to live my life and I think your life. God is telling you that you will be around people who sometimes are not lovable. All right? You understand that? Certainly not here. Never here. Never here. But you know that you will be surrounded, you will be in connection sometime with people who are not lovable. People who are not caring. And so the natural reaction of people in the world is to repudiate those people. And yet you see here that Jesus kept him close. Jesus tried to reach him. Jesus extended love. Jesus washed his feet. You don't read here that Jesus said, oh, I'm washing the 11. No, Judas, go out and get something, will you? You don't see that. Jesus is extending love uniformly to all of them. Even as he knows, he knows what he is. He knows what he will do. Why? Because Jesus wants to give every possible opportunity for a person to be saved. Amen. Every possible opportunity to be saved. That's your job. You're the messenger. You're the messenger. So I pray for you 
that if someone has maligned you or been unkind to you, that you find a way to forgive them. That you show them that you're different. Uh, and I have to say that I have people in my life who have demonstrated that in a powerful way. I'm uh, thinking about someone now, I'm not going to mention the person's name, but someone who was mistreated and yet reached out to the people that mistreated her uh, and extended love years later. And you know what you see? You see people begin to respond. You'll see people begin to respond. So I want to say this to you, that I know many of you have these kind of relationships in your family. Uh, I want you to see this. Understand the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit. Look, I'm not giving you something that's easy to do. I understand this. I know you're saying, oh, John, you don't understand it. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what I went through. Trust me, I know what you went through. I've been through some of these things. I told you, I told you the fact. That's why I repeat that famous phrase from C.S. Lewis, uh, from the screw tape letters uh, when, when the senior demon says to the junior demon who now has lost his patient who he's been steering to come to hell and the junior demon says to his uncle oh I failed I failed I failed oh my patient has just joined the church <laughs> and uncle screw tape the senior demon says fear not dear nephew we do our best work in church. Right? And I know some of you here have been hurt bad in churches. Notice what I said? Not this church. Churches. Plural. I'll bet you more than 50% of you here have had some negative aspects come to your life because of that. I'm telling you right now, you have to, you have to extend the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Don't sit there and act like the world. Don't sit there and say, that's it, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. I'm done with you. All right? I hope you die. I hope you fail. Don't go there, even though the natural human inclination. Look, I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> Who could give a better testimony about this? All right? I mean, that's why God has a sense of humor. Who would think that God would take an Italian from New Jersey who was a lawyer and make him a Bible teacher? <laughs> if you want to see the, the miraculous work of God, all right, to prove that I can take the old nature of somebody and squeeze it out, and I can make somebody a new person, that's the proof of that. Amen. Understand? So don't tell me, oh, you don't know, I'm a, my character, they hurt me. Yes, we know. Look at Jesus. Three years he walks around with a guy who then sells him to death. And so what a tremendous, this, this whole series of verses, honestly, I've never really studied as much for the impact of what it means to me as to how to live my life. What Jesus is demonstrating to us in love. Uh, and I commend you, especially those that are going to the prisons. Uh, because you are, you are in a place where you are doing uh, God's work in a very difficult environment. And that's what God wants you to do. Um, and so what I also want you to see here is the character of Judas. What does it take for somebody to spend three years in the company of God? Three years to walk around with evil in the heart. Three years to sit next to Jesus. Three years of hypocrisy, hypocrisy, evil. Can you just imagine uh, 
Jesus giving the sock to Judas, right? In front of the twelve, and the twelve are still going, I don't know, who is it? It's one of us, I can't believe it's one of us. And Jesus gives the sock to Judas, and I'm going to fill the words in that you don't read here, because I think you can interpret it. I can just see Jesus going like this, saying, Judas, I love you. And Judas saying, don't worry, Lord, I'm with you. You have any doubt? Don't worry, Lord. I've got your back covered. Yeah. Meanwhile, the hypocrisy and the evil uh, coming out. Uh, you see this fact of being a deceiver. That's how Satan is, being a deceiver. And the disciples are clearly unaware. Uh, and so what it shows you is the amazing love and grace of Jesus. And this is what Jesus is teaching us for today, how he wants us uh, to, to live, how he wants us to live our lives, and how he wants us to demonstrate to a world that is lost how, how we are to live. I talked to you about light and darkness, light and darkness. From the beginning, John made it very clear, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of this, of this life. It is Jesus who brings life in, right from the very beginning. And now you see darkness. He leaves the room. Judas walks out. And it was dark. Evil. Encompassing. <coughs> Evil. Taking over. Uh, and so to abandon Jesus is to pass from the light into the darkness. You got that? <laughs> to abandon Jesus is to walk from the light into the darkness. Uh, and how unbelievably foolish it is to walk away from light itself uh, and to spend eternity into darkness. Now, it's very interesting as you read this that once Judas departs, it's almost as if uh, a curtain is lifted in that room. There's now a freedom, freedom of the Spirit. And Jesus is now free to speak to the rest of the disciples. And Jesus seems to have held back uh, while Judas was there as Jesus is trying to bring Judas back and try to get him to forbear on his plans. And Ju Judas moves forward nonetheless. And so now Jesus begins to speak of his coming glory, about the new commandment he's going to give them. He's going to speak about heaven. And he's going to speak about the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the theme of the glorification of Christ and of the Father comes first in these revelations. Um, and in this sense, the word glory, the word glory, as Jesus is using the word glory, is very much associated with the appearance of God at Mount Sinai. The glory of God appearing in Mount Sinai, in which the, the brightness, the light of God was so strong, permeating everything, that God had to put the entire Mount of Sinai in a fog bank. Because the, the, the Jewish people could not stand to look at the glory of God, the very light of God. Uh, it had to be veiled by a cloud. And so now the question becomes, as the world doesn't understand it, how could Jesus say glorification would come from crucifixion? How does that happen? How does glorification, the elevation, the light, the very affirmation of who God is. How can that be identified with this despicable means of execution? Uh, crucifixion. And, and honestly, the cross, and this is a key thing for you to know as you speak to people in the world. The cross 
is the most significant event in the history of the world. There is nothing more important in the history of the world that took place before Jesus went to the cross, nor would take place after Jesus would go to the cross. And I ask you to take consideration of that Wednesday morning when you wake up after the election. Am I right? There is nothing more important. You have given yourself to God. God has accepted you because of the cross, because of what took place. And that is the act of glorification. God planned that day from the very foundation of the creation of the world. From the very foundation of the creation of the world. And so at the cross you see you see the history of humanity turning around and reversed. Humanity is lost. Adam is lost. The world is in sin. The world is sliding to hell. There is no way out. There is no way out. And God reversed it through Jesus on that day in the cross. All right? Because of the conduct of the first Adam. This world, everything in this world, all of the sickness, all of the disease, all of the, of the uh, weather issues, everything that takes place in this world that's, that's, that was designed to be perfect, that was not designed to decay, that was designed to be eternal, all collapses in and on itself because of sin. Because of sin. And God now sends a lifesaver. As he reverses the work of the first Adam. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Underline justification there. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Amen? Amen. There it is. God justify humanity through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what he did. He justified. You were, God is just. You cannot get to God. You cannot sit with God. 
You cannot be, be in the company of the saints that have given themselves to God unless you are justified. That's how God is. He doesn't play favorites. He is, he is uh, absolutely down the line. And the only way you get to be justified is through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. No other way. No other way. Uh, I want you also to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Powerful verses. Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. You want to know who has the power of death? It's Satan. It's Lucifer. That's the power of death, as, as he overcame man at the Garden of Eden. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Let me say something right now. If you are a committed Christian, nobody is looking to die, but you don't have the overwhelming, abiding fear of death. Can I get an amen? Amen. You are not afraid of death. Death is merely the next stage of life eternal. All this life here is a pitiful uh, prior performance of a few years when God has set eternity for us on the next stage. We're not afraid to die. We're not looking to die, but we're not afraid of dying. We don't have that overwhelming uh, fear of death. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels he helps. How do you like that? Let's get that straight. But Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen? Amen. So you see the work of Christ in every way. You see the work of Christ. Look also now at Romans chapter 3. These are important verses. As you speak to a world that's lost, these are word, words you can, can remember. Verse 25. God presented him, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Underline that, please. He did this, God did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What does it mean? It means this, that all those who died in God before Jesus Christ came, God knew where their hearts were. They were, they were people who had given themselves to God, yet God knew they would be justified By the cross of Christ when Christ came 2,000 years later. How do you like that? How do you like that? The whole plan of God demonstrating justice in every way. God just doesn't do things by chance. 
He doesn't do it in chance. We'll continue this next week. Let's close. Lord, I thank you for the words you've given us. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this image of the upper room, Lord. I thank you for letting us see how Jesus acted in the presence of evil, Lord. And yet he dispensed love. Lord, give us that grace to be able to do that as well. Bless our people. Protect them this week. Bring them safely back. We put all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 Bless you.